Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to that psalm, Psalm number 8. You'll find it on page 531 of your pew Bible. That's page 531, Psalm number 8. And if you would, please stand, and we will, having sung it, we will now look at it together and read it. It begins this way, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, as we consider broadly this psalm uh, this evening, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of what you have done and the ugliness of our cultural moment. And that as we see those two things very clearly this evening, we would be drawn in our hearts to praise you and to praise your Son, who is the one who made all things. Father, we pray that you would do this in each heart and life here. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It was a great week this week, um, sitting with my class. I had about 10, some days 10, sometimes 12 third and fourth graders going through the creation stories and um, getting to spend time with them talking about those things. The theme all week was space, but really space um, was just a way of talking about creation. That was really the focus of our week. And all through that experience, all week long as I was teaching um, third and fourth graders, I was constantly aware, and if you know me, this is just how I tend to be, I was constantly aware of how all this sounds to the world, to the world around us. Most of you know I teach apologetics to high schoolers. I've done that for a long time, and I think for a very long time I have worked this way, where I, I look at a passage, I look at a situation, and I, I think about the moment we're living in and what others around us believe. When I first moved to New Jersey, I subscribed to The New Yorker, um, It would be hard to find a publication that hates Christianity more openly. And I read almost every issue of The New Yorker for, I think, five to six years, in part so that I could learn and understand where everyone around me was coming from, um, what their worldview was like, what was coming out of especially New York, which is sort of the big metro area, even down here, it, it casts its influence. And so even as I was teaching third graders and fourth graders uh, about creation in very, obviously very simple ways, I was thinking um, as an apologetics teacher, I was thinking also as a parent and what I want my children to know. And 
At the same time, I was reading Psalm 8. What I want to do tonight is a little different than what we normally do. So if you're visiting or listening online, you're not familiar with our church, our, our normal practice is to exegete. That means to take from the text. We go line by line. Uh, we explain what's going on in the text. I'm not doing that tonight exactly, although what I'm saying I believe is taught clearly in the text. I will come back to Psalm 8, and we'll go through more of the details of what the psalmist meant in each line and some of the questions that you might have. But tonight, I just want to share with you two um, reflections from a week of VBS talking about creation and a week of thinking about Psalm 8 as a parent and also as someone who teaches apologetics. So, so here they are. The first reflection is this. How wonderful, how satisfying, how pleasant, how majestic is the Bible's account of our creation. How majestic is the Lord's name in all the earth. Scholars, uh, pastors, and scientists all agree. They don't usually agree on much, but we all agree on this, that human beings live their lives out of stories. We make a story. You may not realize you've done this, but we all do it. I'm not talking about lies. I'm not talking about fairy tales. I'm talking about your worldview, the big story that you believe, that you function out of on a daily basis. And scholars have studied it, both Christian and non-Christian. They found the same things, basically. People uh, weave together various life and world events and facts that they believe and experiences they have, and they form a story. And this uh, story uh, for that person becomes their view, their worldview. Uh, the technical term is meta-narrative, just means big story of what, they're, what they think the world is about, why it's here, why we're here, where we're going, what does it all mean. Now, sometimes, uh, actually all the time, people like to pick at the Christian view to nibble at the edges of what we believe um, as a church and call it silly and stupid and sometimes even dangerous. And we see that on social media. We see that pretty much everywhere in our culture, um, almost nonstop. Our kids are afflicted with it almost constantly, especially if they're in the public education system. It's, it's, it's all the time uh, in one way or another. Now, when the Lord allows that to happen to you, and it happens to me all the time, uh, rejoice. It's an opportunity to love that person. It's an opportunity to share the gospel with them. It was just a couple of weeks ago, my family ended up in, I think it was a two or three hour discussion with someone they met at a pool at uh, one of our members' uh, developments about the gospel. So this happens. It's everywhere. And when it happens, we should be thankful and rejoice. But um, there comes a time in that conversation with that person where you must ask them, to present their view, their big story, their meta narrative, their worldview. Uh, the secular world loves to, again, pick at ours and mock it, but very rarely, in my experience anyway, do secular people, are they willing to really lay out their view? Because at the very moment they do so, you see how absolutely horrific the culture's view of our lives really is. There is absolutely nothing satisfying or majestic about the current secular viewpoint. 
Now this is true on many different issues, but maybe nowhere is it more true than in creation. Nothing, after all, is more powerful than your view of where our world came from, what it is, what lies behind it all. Psalm 8 gives a very clear answer. In the very first verse, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And again, see in verse 3, the moon and the stars are the work of your fingers. The Bible says we are a creation, the creative workmanship of a brilliant designer, that we are art and everything is art. It's all about the name, the glory of the creator. As a creation, everything in us and around us has meaning and sends a message. Psalm 19 especially focuses on this as it says, day and night pour forth speech. But Psalm 8 is rooted in it too. Things mean something because they are made. A designer, a creator means intentionality and randomness and chance are banished. So the Bible views reality, our world, as a symphony of beauty and meaning. And this is the view we got to share with our children all week long. On the flip side, the secular dominant view held in our culture is truly horrific. Thomas Howard um, grew up a few miles from here in Morristown. You know his older sister. His older sister was Elizabeth Elliot. And Thomas Howard and Elizabeth Elliot had a time where they lived here in Morristown. And Thomas became a, a literature and English professor. And he wrote a little known book. It's the title of the sermon tonight. The book is called Chance or the Dance. And the essence of the book is to ask one great question. Is reality, all of it, reality, is it primarily random and meaningless chance? Or is it planned and beautiful? Dance. He describes the Christian mindset as one that declares that, quote, everything means everything. And in his words, that finally that everything rushes up into heaven and is fulfilled there. He well describes the secular mindset as the complete opposite. Everything means nothing. The bedrock of our current salvation, our civilization is the belief that everything is violence and chance. Secular evolution, evolution detached from any kind of creator or purpose, secular evolution as it is taught everywhere in a society is simply a system of terrible violence that runs the world. There is no benevolent or creative mind behind our world, they say, just violence. Violence sounds bad, so they dress it up and they call it natural selection. This is critical for our institutions. Violence, in their view, violence is what lays at the heart of all reality. At the heart of all reality for the secularist is violence, where we would put love or glory, or in the language of Psalm 8, majesty, they have put in that same place violence. The implications are many. Darwin's famous book, 
is rarely quoted or titled correctly, but it should be. The book, as some of my former students know, is The Origin of Species or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Darwin placed violence and struggle and racism at the heart of everything. I cannot develop this fully here, but this much is absolutely clear. The secular view places chaos and violence as the mother and father of our reality. And this explains so much of what's going on today, actually everything that we face. Why do young people enter schools or malls with guns and then kill themselves? It's because they believe that the ruling principle of life is chaos, death, and violence. And in their last act, usually because they're so miserable themselves and without hope because there's no judge, no savior, and no helper. So in their last act, they offer themselves to those dark gods. Often they do it garbed in black. We act horrified as a society by this, but it is common sense to the secular view. Violence against the weak is Darwinism. It is the heart of Darwinism, the very essence of life, they believe. Life is chaos in the secular view, an ocean of meaninglessness driven along by winds of violence. We could go on and on, but let's get back to Psalm 8 before it gets too dark. I feel a little bit like Gandalf in that moment where he is forced to use the black speech of Mordor in an elven context, and he uh, doesn't like to even say those words. And I don't even like saying these words in church, but it must be said. How wonderful then to tell our kids that they are not the product of chance, randomness, and violence. Rather, they are designed, created, even if they have special needs, even if they have disabilities. They're designed, loved, created. They are planned. They are purposed. And their lives speak forth the majesty of their God. That the world they live in is the work of his fingertips. And that everything means everything. And that in the final analysis, everything will rush up to heaven for its ultimate meaning. Plato grasped at this in the dark, and he got some of it, though not perfectly. All our great artists and musicians have felt it. All our painters have painted it, and all our writers have written it. They know we live inside a story, not inside a mindless storm. Yes, it's easy to take cheap shots at the Christian message. People mock the talking snake and the magic apple of Eden. Of course, neither of those are accurate views of the Bible, as my third graders now can tell you. However, the bigger response, the cleverer rejoinder, is to ask for their story. And then, when it is revealed in all its monstrous violence, the work is really done. Pushed back into their own minds, they swim in agony and await nothingness. They cut off their body parts and try to reinvent themselves. Anything, everything, just to stop the noise, the evidence of design, 
the evidence of meaning, the evidence of love. How terrible, how we should love and pity them, not in the I'm better than you way, but in the way where you have people, and I know many of you do and I do, people that you cry about regularly. And how we should be thankful for this past week, what we did here, what we said here, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, it was just good, normal VBS stuff. Today, though, it is a quiet rebellion. It is the underground. It is the memory of life, the memory of love, the memory of meaning, and the hope for more of all those things. And so my first reflection was all week, how lovely, how majestic is the Lord's name in all the earth. The second thing that was on my mind each day, and it's very much, of course, connected, is not only is the world, of course, telling forth its praise, but as Psalm 8 reminds us, there's something in the world telling forth its praise more than anything else. And, of course, that something is me and you. How meaningful, how hopeful, and how ennobling is God's account of man Tied to everything we just said, the most hopeful and helpful material is here on mankind in Genesis 1 through 3. The secular story views man as an accident whose time will eventually come. Humans have no real origin story of substance and no judgment at the end, no meaning and no closure, we might say. We're told that mankind emerged from an ocean of violence and struggle, unguided and meaningless. Now, without meaning, he or she must define themselves, since there is no purpose. There is no judge on a throne who can condemn or encourage anything we do or think. And there is no ending or judgment where we will have to face our lives fully. So no one has a final say, or really any say, Life is unwritten, unscripted. Those words sound nice, but we use them to hide other words, the real words. If my existence is an accident attained through pure violence and chance, then there is no written meaning or even direction other than my own mind. There's no owner's manual to the human body, only what you think and feel. In such a view, we become avatars, sometimes, in fact, quite literally. For many, their virtual self now, their styled self, their online self is their most vital self. For others, this approach, this avatar approach will mean radical surgeries, name changes, and lots and lots of chemicals. Attached to this meaninglessness, it has added a dark and hateful view of humanity. For many, if not most, uh, in our culture, man is the ultimate parasite, a confused, meaningless leech. Many openly sometimes long for the day when fewer people will be alive to pollute the environment. Some have even romanticized a mass death event that will purify the earth of man. Death, chaos, and violence 
are the holy trinity of modern Western secularism. And so it has always been tied to abortion, euthanasia, and all other forms of violence and hate. The child in the womb or the elderly person is no longer an image bearer. They are not crowned with glory and honor. They are instead a weight on others, a terrible inconvenience, a problem. It's true that ancient people, the Romans, others, practiced abortion and euthanasia, but they still held to divinity. They were not too cynical or clinical about their abortion because deep down they still thought that human life was in some way special. Many were afraid to reach out and destroy or deform something that seemed divine. They hesitated because they still believed that everything meant everything, that there was a plan. Hitler, Mao, Stalin, they had the courage of their convictions. They lived Darwinism beautifully. Hitler rounded up the disabled who were slowing the race down and exterminated them. They tried, sometimes in profoundly technical and deeply scientific ways, to identify the best members of our race and subjugate, kill, or enslave the rest. Scholars still today cringe when they note how many brilliant minds in the Western world supported these men in their horrific acts. But it was also obvious, having enthroned chaos and violence, you can't back out now. The mass shooter is the most perfect manifestation of the modern man or woman. In his last moments, the mass shooter offers himself, herself, to the chaos and violence that is all that there is or ever will be. And the gods of chaos and violence are enthroned and have been enthroned by the secular Western elites for generations. The Western world can no longer and you don't doubt me on this, go watch uh, lectures at Harvard and others that are on YouTube. You can see this for yourself. The Western world can no longer explain why murder is wrong, especially mass murder. Humanity, after all, they say, does not have divine dignity, though they still like to pretend sometimes that it does. One might hear echoing in the distance Darwin's famous words, the preservation the preservation of only favored races in the struggle for life. The same secularists introduced abortion in the USA to control the black population. This was really good Darwinism and utterly consistent with secular thought. After all, that idea that we all came from one set of parents, to them that was a myth. Psalm 8 and VBS offer a profound response. Mankind is not meaningless. Instead, verse 5, man has been crowned with glory and honor. Do you hear in our cultural moment what a verse like that means? It means meaning. It means value. It means dignity to every human life and a special place in creation. To our great surprise and delight, I hope, God thinks more highly of us than we do of ourselves. He views every human life as in his image, crowned with glory and honor. More than that, Psalm 8 looks forward to a creation made whole. 
Unlike the secularist, this is not a creation devoid of man. When the secularist imagines paradise, it is one in which man has been exterminated. God, however, you see in Psalm 8 and in Genesis and in the New Testament, speaks of a better and new creation, a creation where a man stands at the head of it all, just as it was intended in the beginning. All nature rejoices in him. The trees clap their hands. The rocks break forth in singing. At the end, man is not eliminated in meaningless violence. Rather, a king of love and grace stands reigning over a fully renewed creation. And so three times the New Testament takes Psalm 8 and predicts a final day of restoration. Jesus is, after all, a real man, truly crowned with glory and honor. And the Father has placed all things under his feet. He has dignified our entire race. He is, as he loved to call himself, the son of man, the second Adam. In him, our whole horrible story is made right, and all our glory is given back to us. That is why he had to come and be one of us. Eve, our first mother, received that simple promise as my students learned this week, the first giving of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, God told Eve that one of us, a human, would crush the devil and restore the world. And that's what we live and long for, the day when we get to see our flesh perfected in Jesus Christ, to see all the heroes we ever wished we could be, all of them, rushing up and fulfilled in one person. And what will the world say when he is unveiled in his glory? Maybe we will say it together as a church, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have crowned us with glory and honor. You've exalted the man of your right hand. Everything does mean everything in the end. History is not a story of meaningless violence, but a tragedy turned happy ending in Christ. As we finished the week, we told the kids, these are the days, the days like the days of Noah. The people who follow God seem like fools, seem like Noah building a boat nowhere near an ocean. But we have an ark for the flood that we know is coming. May the Lord gather us and all our children into his beloved ark. And may we celebrate that day when we are lifted up in the person of our Savior and champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we were given such a privilege this week to speak to our children about these things. And we are brought to tears when we think about family and friends who also have children. And the children are, are growing up believing that their life is pointless, that their world is the product of senseless violence, that there is no hope or beauty to truly be found. Uh, we 
pray that you would make us good, faithful, loving, and wise witnesses to those around us. Help us also to continue to instruct our children, to give them again and again these wonderful truths of creation and work in each of their lives, strengthen them against the things they will face and really are already facing in so many ways. We pray now, Father, as we turn to the supper, that you would bless us. We're so grateful for this meal. It comes to us to encourage us in the despair and and brokenness of our current moment. We pray use it to do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.